watch and discuss the horrific, the obscure, and the flat-out strange from the other side of cinema. I'm Mark Dickerson. And I'm Jeremy Fink, and this is the seventh and final installment in our series 80s Indies. Today we'll be discussing 1989's Mystery Train. All aboard! Mystery Train, directed by Jim Jarmusch, is an anthology film featuring a triptych of stories all set in and around the same hotel in Memphis, Tennessee, over the course of one evening. Yes, and in the spirit of this film, uh, we are going to be a little freewheeling with our conversation of Mystery Train. And uh, so, uh, so Jeremy, for certain movies on this show, I'll go through uh, the main beats of the story and, you know, we discuss what happens. But for films like this, I feel the better way to go about it is to basically tackle themes, elements, um, you know, film techniques or whatever, uh, rather than narrative points. And uh, I feel like we're on the same page about that one. Agreed. And also, this is a very good opportunity to finally talk about Jim Jarmusch, who we haven't really talked about yet on the show. But um, somehow, <laughs> somehow. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but I feel like you can't talk about indie films without talking about him. And he is certainly uh, one of my favorite directors. Uh, I'm not sure about you, writer, writer, director. Um, and he has made a lot of films that that I love and that I will watch over and over um, because of the way he, sh he films and his attention to detail and just the quirkiness of, of it. Um, I just really appreciate um, how he films and, and the types of movies that he makes. So um, we, you know, we, we actually were unsure which Jim Jarmusch film to talk about for this series because the series is 80s Indies and we could have talked about uh, his, his very first film, which was Permanent Vacation. Um, In fact, we probably could have done a whole series just on 80s Indies Jim Jarmusch films and we actually probably every single one have been... Could've. Yeah. Yeah. Every single one would have been a joy to talk about because he yeah. was just so prolific during that time period and yeah. such a creative, fun director. Exactly. He did Permanent Vacation. He, uh, after that, it was Str Stranger Than Paradise and then Down by Law. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was all in the 80s. So um, mm -hmm. then we have this film, Mystery Train, Mystery which, Train, which came out in 1989, as you said. And mm -hmm. this is going to end the decade and end our series for 80s Indies. And I just, we, I think we both felt it was like just a good, um, a good vibe to end on. <laughs> just, this film yeah. is just, you know, it's, it's fun, um, a little strange and dark at times, but it, I think mostly it's just, uh, like I said, kind of freewheeling and, and uh, sort of casual, but also there's just, so much uh i find it very engaging like many of his films um he has this, this sort of uh jarmusch has this sort of voyeuristic way to portray things that i i particularly really like um these really wide shots and these tracking shots uh, that you see a lot in this film um that just you kind of are just sitting back and observing these characters uh moving throughout the frame and and that to me is very engaging for some reason and i, I just really respond to that kind of filmmaking um, but how, yeah. how about you? Uh, do, do you, are you, I'm assuming you're a Jarmusch fan. Uh, are you, you yeah, know? so I, I, I am a Jarmusch fan. He's not someone who I, 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 I don't know how to, let's see. He's not someone I would say is one of my favorites, mm -hmm. not because he's not good enough to be one of my favorites. He's just someone I, I don't feel like I've spent enough time with. Yeah. I've seen a handful of his movies and have loved every single one I've seen. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like he's just someone who's kind of more in the back of my mind than the front. Right. Um, so it was really fun. I, I haven't 
I haven't watched a Jim Jarmusch movie in quite a while. This is the Same first here. time in, in a couple, yeah. a few years. Um, it was really nice. I, I feel like with a few more years worth of perspective and a few more years of watching movies, um, coming back to this one, because this is the second time I've seen this movie, I actually um, appreciated it even more, and, and I really enjoyed it the first time. But coming back to it, it was like, um, I don't know, it was, it was a really exciting, fun experience. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I, I think I was most drawn to in this film right from the beginning was just how brilliantly um, the banal is mixed with the sensational mm-hmm. in a way that never feels unnatural. It never feels forced. Like, yeah. it, it, it's one of those things where it feels just as important how somebody lights a cigarette as somebody <laughs> getting shot. Like, like you, yeah, just, you just have to watch exactly. every little moment. Yeah. Um, which all... is really, it's pretty spectacular that you can pull something mm-hmm. like that off. Yeah, and that's what I mean about Jarmusch as a filmmaker. It's like, these two things mm-hmm. that you just mentioned, lighting a cigarette and a gunshot, uh, have the same resonance somehow uh, when you watch it. And it's it's pretty amazing. So, yeah, I definitely would recommend checking out more of his films if, if you haven't. And um, whoever's listening who maybe he's only dipped their toe in the water, um, he's really good. And uh, especially during the 80s, like we mentioned, uh, with all these films. But, yeah, I mean, think I think Mystery Train, I think you actually were the one, Jeremy, who, who uh, recommended this mm-hmm. film. And I hadn't even thought of it for the series, but it's, it's sort of perfect to end this one, I think, to end the series. Yeah. yeah. I think it is kind of the culmination in an interesting way of a lot of the things we've talked about. Um, and, and for the reason I, I picked mystery train, um, one, it was just because it's a movie that I, I love and, and was excited to talk about it. But two, it's just, you know, I think that there's done, uh, I think that there has been a decent amount of critical discussion on stranger than paradise, which I think is kind of the, um, initial film people think of with Jarmusch in the eighties. Um, but I thought that Mystery Train was kind of an interesting in-between, especially as an indie, um, because some films we've talked about in this series are much, much lower budget, um, like She's Gotta Have It, and yeah. Jim Jarmusch certainly uh, tackled those kind of that, that kind of smaller budget range in his first few movies. But what's interesting to me about Mystery Train is it was a movie that was a little bit bigger budget. I believe the budget was a little over $2 million. Um, for, yeah, for Jim which, Jarmusch, it was his highest budget at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, and we're talking about it's 1989, so two million then is probably you know what three million now, um, which isn't isn't nothing. That's that's a substantial budget. You can make a pretty, uh, pretty high quality, high production value movie for that budget. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but what I, what I like about this is that it felt like every dollar of that budget was used um, creatively. It didn't feel like a filmmaker who all of a sudden had an opportunity. To, with yeah. more money to pull out all the stops and just threw it at things that he didn't need. It felt yeah. like there was really a lot of careful thought given to, oh, well, we have this money. Let's really, really, really think about set design. You know, it's like yeah. the, like like one of the one of the examples in the hotel in, in the final segment um, titled Lost in Space. Um, there's like a door and there's these little chunks taken out of the door, mm-hmm. um, which which is just a rich little detail. Um, yeah. And it just feels like throughout the whole film to me that there, there was such such a careful focus on um place and setting and set design um that that really enhanced just this kind of moody almost i don't know would you consider this a noir what what what, what genre would you kind of slide Hmm. this film into for anthology i guess i don't (laughs) yeah i don't know what yeah what the actual genre would be for this one um because it's kind of hard to pin down but a little bit of noir i would say yeah a little bit of, of that in there particularly with um you know the gun re-emerging the gunshot and things like that and um well i mean as you said jeremy the uh the city of memphis is the main focal point 
And um, even though he did have a, a higher budget for this than his other films, he Jarmusch definitely was very restrained. I would say, like as you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, he didn't go over the top with it. Um, and it's very, it is very a low key movie, but there is like a lot of, like I said, it's just very engaging, and certain things that happen are still sort of like unbelievable. Like you know, I, I like the gunshot is is something that I I think of as just you know something so simple, but uh, just mm-hmm. y- you wonder what's going on, and then you start to find out. But um, so, and he, he's good at these little details that he puts in. There's a lot of that in this film. Um, but the main thing, obviously, is Memphis. You know, all these stories take place in one particular hotel in Memphis. Uh, and there's certainly something about that city. I don't know if you've ever been there, Jeremy. Um, have you ever taken a trip? I, or... I, have, I have not been to Memphis, no. Okay. I, I took a, a southern road trip one time, and we, uh, we stayed in Memphis for, for a night, me and my wife, and... Uh, I really liked it. I really enjoyed the, the city. It just has a certain feel to it. And I feel like mm-hmm. Jarmusch got that down on, like when you watch this film, you can, you can feel that. Um, yep. Cause e- even being a major tourist destination uh, more than most, it Memphis to me still feels authentic. And uh, at least when I was there, which was a few years ago um, and it, it really maintains that aura, um, that certain aura about it, that mystique. Um doesn't feel like you're going to Disneyland or something. I mean, Graceland's yeah. a little a little bit like that, but even that was more low key than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. And um, just in general, it still has that. You know, I, I don't want to use the word because I did enjoy the city, but there is sort of that griminess. Um, yeah, it's it's still present. You know, because it's a city, and you know, sometimes cities are not the cleanest. But um, yeah, so it, it it came across as very real to me. Whereas after that, on our trip, we went to Nashville, and that was like. I enjoyed mm-hmm. Nashville, but it felt like the opposite to me. It felt kind of more like, yeah, so more touristy or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, so even though Memphis has Graceland and uh, Sun Studio and all like the famous rockabilly, uh, you know, locations and everything, um, I still found it to be a very authentic city and the people were very authentic. And I actually went to the Arcade Diner, which is where they filmed a couple scenes oh, cool. for this movie, which was really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, the hotel is no longer there. Uh, yeah, which was that was it was a real hotel there. It was yeah. at one time, I believe. Interesting. Uh, yeah, so it it was actually a pretty. I think pretty soon after filming, it was um, it was no longer there. But so that was kind of a bummer for me. But I got to go to uh, the diner, which was pretty cool. So and I got to mm-hmm. see where where the actual hotel was, which was basically just across the street and and across the street and down a little bit uh, on the same street. So. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting you say that about it being like a real city, and and I think for me, I don't want to pick favorites um, in terms of segments because in my view, an anthology. Oh, I was going to ask you <laughs> by the end. Yeah, of it. I mean, yeah, I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna avoid picking a favorite. I think um, okay. because I I think it's all directed by one director, and they mm-hmm. are even though they are separate segments, I think they're kind of part of a a yeah. bigger whole. Um, but but the the segment I would say that kind of stuck with me the most from the first time I saw it. And that really interested me again in coming back to it was Far From Yokohama, which is the Same. first segment. And I think the, mm-hmm. the one idea that always kind of blew my mind um, that's present in this in this particular segment is this idea of going to a place um, and the expectation versus reality. Um, yeah. But specifically kind of what happens after you've already seen the thing that you came to see. Yeah. Um, and, and you're just kind of in a place that you don't really understand. Um, I, th- I think mm-hmm. that I, I, I love that the, our main characters, which is Mitsuko and Jun, I believe it was, is how it mm-hmm. pronounced. 
um, that they were from another country and didn't speak the language, so the land seemed yeah. even more foreign and mystical to them. But even to them, by the end of the day, it was kind of like, all right, they'd seen enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. They were more into the mo- the hotel room, I guess. Yeah, which, which is kind of right. fun because I think everyone has kind of had an experience like that where you go somewhere and you're excited about this prospect of going somewhere else. And it's almost like the grass yeah. is greener kind of thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then you get there and you have your fun. But once you kind of settle into it, mm-hmm. it's you're just in a room. You're just on yeah. a street corner. Um, and it might look <laughs> a little different. It might smell a little different. The yeah. language might be different. But at the end of the day, it's still just like people kind of existing, going about their business. Yeah, it's um, almost like observing and being like, oh, that's kind of different than from where I'm from or that's kind of the same and and just kind of comparing and contrasting. And they show a lot of that. Yeah, um, like the one scene where they're sitting outside saying, you know, this could be Yokohama if there were 60% yeah. more buildings or something like <laughs> <Right>. that. <laughs> Which is great because, yeah, well, I mean, that's a, that's a great way of putting it because mm. it's like, you know, New York City could be Albany if there were 60% less <laughs> buildings and Albany could be... <laughs> A, you know, yeah. a, a, a barn in the middle of the woods if there are 60% yeah. less buildings and so on and so on until, you know, you take a few buildings away and any place in the world could be like any other place in the world. And really at its core, the people who are there inhabiting that space are what make it interesting and worth it. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, since you brought it up, I you know, let's start with the first segment, which is mm-hmm. far from Yokohama. And we, I know we're not going to name favorites, but this is this is my favorite one because I, I just, when I think of this film, this is what I think of this segment. Um, I don't know why it just, it just it yeah. hits me the most. And uh, the themes of it are very interesting to me and the characters are great. And uh, yeah, I mean, the film as a whole is great and they all kind of intertwine, but this one is just like the one that stands out to me, I guess. But anyway, so this uh, young, so the film starts with a train <laughs> uh, yeah. coming around and comes, uh, pulls into Memphis uh hear the song mystery train and we uh we see the young japanese couple arriving uh mitsuko as you said who's sort of a a, a punk looking girl i guess and Mm -hmm. her boy her boyfriend june who's much more 50s he's got the cigarette behind the ear Mm -hmm. um in fact he he's very clearly i guess trying to well at first i thought he was trying to emulate elvis Mm -hmm. but uh we soon find out that he's not the biggest fan of elvis actually um, trying to be Carl Perkins, right? Yeah, more Carl Perkins, I would I would say, because um, yeah. he's actually not too into Elvis. He wants to get mm-hmm. Graceland over with, is, is what he says. But um, yeah. So he, but he has a slick pompadour, the jacket, you know, constantly mm-hmm. combing his hair back. So he's he's definitely very much of that '50s style, um, yeah. the rockabilly style, obviously. Um, it's sort of like a pilgrimage for them, but also yeah. kind of not. Yeah, it's weird. Well, it, it, it it's kind of funny too because there's a thing where as they kind of get there immediately you discover that like like they're getting a tour of the what's the studio called um sun studio yeah Sun Studio. yeah they're, they're getting a tour of the studio and you realize that they're actually the most rock rockabilly thing about the place like the, <laughs> like the, like the studio and all the stuff that's supposed to be so cool has kind of right. i don't want to say it's lost it's cool but it's you know it's yeah it's it's, it's become so cool. yeah it's like a room but yeah, yeah people, but it's a know, tourist whole... attraction. Right, exactly. Yeah. But but they're they're yeah. living it. They're 18 years old cuz which I, I think was a really interesting <laughs> detail that I kind of maybe missed last time or just didn't put mm-hmm. as much thought into because I was a little younger when I saw this movie, but like now mm-hmm. thinking about being 18 years old on your own in a strange city. Yeah. It's like why are these kids who are from Japan? Like like mm-hmm. the, 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 there's just so many questions about how they even ended up there in the right. first place. 
um, how they're affording it. Um, like, do they have a home or is this just what, like what they're doing? Like, there's just so many questions that is kind of very rock and roll, you know, that they're just, yeah, you do get the sense that, yeah, you get the sense that they kind of live that life, that kind of rock and roll life. I mean, whether or not that's true, I guess we never really find out. Like you said, we don't really learn too much about them, but, um, they sort of have that, that style to them, I guess. Um, but yeah, so they visit Sun Studio. Um, and we get those really nice tracking shots, Jeremy, what I, I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, um, of them just walking in Memphis, walking along the street or on, on the sidewalk or whatever. And those shots to me are just like, I don't know, very Memphis, very, very cool shots. Um, and I really, um, besides uh, certain things standing out in this film, that's one of them is the tracking shots of, of the city uh, in this film. And also, uh, so yeah, they go to Sun Studio and uh, take the tour, <laughs> as you mentioned, yep. um, which is a little underwhelming, but you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of how tours go usually. And, yeah. uh, they and could, so I, I love that they couldn't understand a word of what the woman was yeah. like. They get out there, like <laughs> she was talking so fast. Like, yeah. They're, just, they're, <laughs> they're there though. Yeah. That was funny. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was probably already hard for them to understand. And then she was like talking a mile a minute. Um, and then as you said, Jeremy, they talk about, they they sort of contemplate how cities are, you know, cities and places are alike and different. Um, and being far from home is, is a theme for this segment. Um, I guess, I guess it's a theme actually for all the segments, which is another unifying theme of the three segments, uh, is being far from home is being a tourist or, you know, in, in a strange place that you're not used to being far from home. So um, they are from Japan, obviously, and, and they, um, uh, they do compare it to Yokohama, which they, we mentioned earlier. Um, and they find this hotel. Is it a hotel or motel? Actually, I'm not, I guess it's more I of a motel. It's, yeah. 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 Motel. Hotel. I never really yeah, understood the <laughs> difference, but um, so they, uh, in the motel is the night clerk and mm-hmm. the bellboy. Um, and the night clerk is played by Screamin' Jay Hawkins, who is a very famous musician who Jim Jarmusch um, knew. And I, I think he did music for uh, one of his other films. And he's great in this. And um, also, <laughs> there's a connection to another film that we talked about in the series, which was Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It, because the bellboy is played by Spike Lee's younger brother. And I'm gonna, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly or not, but his name is Sinke Lee. Uh, C-I-N-K-U-E with a, with a little accent on the E. So he plays the, the bellboy in this, and he was a friend of Jim Jarmusch, and um, they knew each other, and he has appeared in a couple other of his films as well. So that was a pretty cool little connection there. And um, they play the night clerk and the bellboy throughout the film, and they kind of show up sporadically. Um, I saw it more as, like I guess, sort of comic relief, but also just kind of another unifying thing that's just there in, yeah. in all the stories. I, yeah, um, I felt like the, the night clerk and the bellboy kind of grounded, um, yeah, grounded all on. these characters to the same mm-hmm. place. Um, Cause even though we know they're in the same, the same motel, um, just seeing, seeing how these two people interact with all these different characters, you kind of got a sense of all of the other characters through the bellboy and the night clerk in a way. Um, and yeah, with that, you got more that. of a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with that, you got more of a sense of the bellboy and the night clerk through their interactions with right. these different yeah. personality types. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like another, you know, a couple of movies we've talked about so far, even in this series, um, it's one of those movies where there's a lot of characters and you don't get to know any one character all too well. 
mm-hmm. um, but you get to know a little bit of each each of the characters just by what you see from them. So um, yeah, it's more like how they react to the different characters um, is how you you start to learn about them. Um, so uh, the the young couple goes into their their motel room and there's a big Elvis portrait on the wall right away, um, which <laughs> you say this you actually see the same exact portrait in the, the second segment. Um, so I, you know Elvis is obviously like the other major. Uh, connection between all the stories and, and a major part of, of the city of Memphis, obviously, and the music scene there um, with Graceland being there and everything. Um, so I, I do want to get your opinion on that, though, Jeremy. Um, I, do you think Jarmusch was trying to say anything about idols or hero worship or anything like that with, with using Elvis you know, as one of these themes? Or do you think he's just so much a part of the city that, there's, that you know, if he was going to do a film about Memphis, then it had to be about Elvis, too? I don't know. I mean, I I would say, I don't know if it's about idol or hero worship so much for me, at least in, in how I interpreted it. For me, it was kind of more um, throughout the film, you heard all these stories about Elvis. You know, it was this kind of this idea of Elvis as this larger than life figure. Um, yeah. But meanwhile, we're watching these stories of these very normal people, um, these, mm-hmm. these very uh, working class kind of not special like Elvis people um and the stories are really wonderful and I think in a way um Jarmusch is maybe kind of saying that these people are just as important to Memphis as Elvis mm-hmm. um just in, in a more uh in a less direct way they're just mm-hmm. as important um but yeah maybe maybe there is something about this idea it's also interesting that in this movie we have a couple actual rock stars like you know yeah, we, we have Screamin' Jay Hawkins who you know, not not necessarily someone who is a household name, although his one of his songs certainly is. Um, yeah. With I put <laughs> a spell on you. you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you He's have sort of like um, a, a legend in that scene, though. You know, that particular scene, I would say. Yeah, and then um, you have Joe Strummer from uh, the Clash. So, yeah. so it is interesting that you you it, this movie does kind of take these these people who are mm-hmm. actual rock stars and put them in a position where they're made to be very normal. Um, I yeah. know that's a little bit of a meta touch, but at the time, I would imagine well, Screamin' Jay Hawkins and Joe Strummer were even more famous than mm-hmm. they are now. Um, yeah, well, Jarm- Jarmusch is also known for using musicians in his films. Uh, there's, um, you know, in uh, Ghost Dog, it was Ghostface Killer was the the main actor in that. And also, of course, his uh, many collaborations with John Laurie, uh, who's a musician. And, you know, he acted in his first couple films and he does... I believe he does the music for this film as well. Um, so he's he's known for kind of doing that, but I think, yeah, it stands out more in this movie just because they are talking about music so much and the music scene. And uh, certainly Elvis is, a, I would say, like a specter that, that kind of looms over mm-hmm. Memphis because um, how can he not be, right? Yeah. Um, but of course you have, you know, you have Roy Orbison, you have <laughs> Carl Perkins, um, you have all these other musicians that are either from that area or performed there or recorded there. Um, and I think that's also a point that maybe he's, that the filmmaker is trying to make is that, you know, it wasn't just Elvis. There was these other people that contributed to the scene. And, um, but like you said, Jeremy, I think he's also trying to say that like, you know, every part of Memphis is important. And I think these, you know, even just like these people that work the front desk at a sort of sleazy motel. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I think he's, he's maybe saying that, or maybe it's just inferred, but either way. Memphis is certainly an interesting uh, city to base a movie around. So, um, But it's funny, and I, I think one of my favorite parts of the movie, and it's something that I always think about, is when 
uh, June is taking, he's taking pictures of the inside of the motel room, <laughs> not mm -hmm. the outside. And, uh, and his reasoning for that is really interesting. He's, he says that that's what he forgets, you know, like that and like the train yeah. station and things like that. Um, so he always makes sure to take a picture of those, those kinds of things. Um, and I always think of this whenever I stay in a hotel or motel or whatever. And I almost <laughs> always make sure to get a photo of the room because yeah. I always like flashback to the scene. Yeah. That's so funny. That's it, great. That's a great it's, it's an interesting idea because like that's what you're not that that you know more than anything is what you're not going mm -hmm. to remember visually probably yeah. so mm -hmm. um so it's just interesting but yeah, yeah it is interesting because that's that's the place you go to rest after you've done stuff you know after, after has, you've done the important yeah. stuff that's where you just go to, to <laughs> right. sleep well especially a room like they're staying in it has so much character to it yeah uh, whether you're, you want to call it kitschy or run down whichever way you want to look at it it's just mm -hmm. uh, an interesting room so that that's on top of that as well but um and I always enjoy the back and forth dialogue in this scene between the this couple um, in this segment in, in particular. With um, there's just something natural and at the same time kind of quirky and interesting about how they speak to one another. And um, there's of course the the famous scene, uh, maybe one of the best known scenes from this movie, where Mizuko paints uh, on June's face with her lipstick to make him happy. <laughs> she says <laughs> it's just a fun little scene where she you know she makes him smile with the lipstick. Um, and Blue Moon playing on the radio uh, as they lay in bed together. And it just gives you this very, uh, it, you know, this to me is all about atmosphere, I would say, this movie. Um, and this scene in particular gives you that very lonesome feeling, um, not only the song, but uh, just them in bed holding each other, just, you know, something about that. Um, yeah. And uh, this song would be, you know, we would go on to hear it in the next two segments, but of course you don't, you wouldn't know that if you were seeing it for the first time, but um, really good use of music. And in the morning, um, as they're packing to leave, because they're going to go to Graceland that day, um, they hear a gunshot. And, she, you know, she says, was that a gunshot? And and his re uh, June's reaction to this is, is great. He's, he says, probably, this is America. <laughs> and that's that's the end of the segment, and they leave. So, um, and that's kind of like, you know, in, and when you see that for the first time, you don't know if it, it maybe just a small detail, like a little, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it, maybe just they just heard a gunshot in the city and that's and it's just a funny line or whatever. Um, but that gunshot obviously comes back and uh, we're going to go to our. So there's the second segment, which is called A Ghost. Now, this one's very different, um, but it's still involving someone from a, another country. Uh, she's an Italian widow named Luisa, and she actually gets stranded in Memphis. Uh, while she's escorting her husband's coffin back to Italy. So sort of an odd situation to be in and made all the more odd because now she's in this strange city that she knows nothing about. And uh, so she's there by accident, essentially. And um, she goes to the diner, the arcade diner, which I sat in, which is really cool. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's still there. It's still, it's still, I mean, at least, like I said, uh, as of a few years ago, it looked exactly the same as it does in the movie. Um, and uh, a stranger, so, so sort of this weird guy kind of comes up and sits with her at the table because she's just all by herself. And he says, I know about you and the king. And he starts, <laughs> you know, he, say, he says he has this important message he's supposed to deliver to her. And he tells her this story uh, about this ghost hitchhiker. And it ends up being the king himself, Elvis Presley. And yeah. he gives, and he, he says, you know, he, wants, he wanted me to give this to you. And he hands her Elvis's comb or what he says is Elvis's comb. 
and then he requests a twenty dollar delivery fee. <laughs> Which I, I just like to make a note. I just like to make a note that too that, that yeah. performance. Uh, what was that actor's name? You had just pulled it up. Tom, oh, Tom Noonan. Tom yeah. Noonan. He, he's I, I, one of those faces wa- that you, yeah. Yeah, yeah, faces and voices that kind of pops up. But um, he uh, just a note for me like that performance was so good when he was telling that yeah, story. Yeah, it was because I found yeah. I found myself you know when it started I'm like all right obviously. This is just some guy harassing this poor woman in the diner. Mm-hmm. But as he started going into the story and really taking his time with it, I almost had that moment where I'm like, is this movie going to go in a weird direction? Like, is there is this yeah. is this yeah. going to turn into a good because he just was so convincing in in <laughs> yeah. how he delivered the story. I was like, wow, I like, agree. Yeah. maybe we're yeah. just going to all of a sudden go into some Elvis ghost story because, you know, knowing yeah. having seen some Jim Jarmusch movies before. You know, not that he's so supernatural his work, but he's he, his writing is he always unpredictable. Yeah, a little bit, and his writing is always unpredictable. And I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, hey, like this this could go there. Um, yeah, sometimes and, he goes for the more surreal. You know, yeah. So that could, yeah. I I agree. I totally agree. When he's telling that story, it's like you really don't know where it's gonna go, and especially because yeah. this is an anthology film, and mm-hmm. some anthology films. Well, most of them are, are, you know, each segment or each story is, is very different from yeah. one another. So you never really know. And, but we do get a bit of that, uh, actually, in, in a bit. Um, in yeah. This segment. Well, we maybe. A little bit of supernatural. Maybe. Well, maybe, yeah. We don't know for, for sure. But mm-hmm. but anyway, so he, um, this stranger, uh, offers her the comb, which he says is Elvis's, and then asks for the $20 delivery fee. And, which is so, uh, it's so funny get, because it, it's such an unspectacular comb. It's just the most yeah, bland. It's just a, well, I guess it would be, right? Um, it would. I mean, maybe it would yeah. be. I don't know. Elvis was pretty flashy. Yeah. In my mind, Elvis yeah, probably used some kind of comb <laughs> with like his initials on it. But but this is just but the it's most an old comb. <laughs> boring, normal comb. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like it's almost like he picked it up at the dollar store or something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, on the way, yeah. Um, but so this woman, Louisa, she kind of humors him. She gives him $10 for the good story. And another 10 to go away. So it's yeah. just like this fun little scene. But then, so from there, when she leaves the diner, this woman, um, the same stranger and another guy sort of creep up on her and kind of follow her as she leaves. So it kind of takes this ominous tone, uh, which I thought was kind of cool. It kind of does a 180 there. Um, and you don't really know what's going to happen. Um, and it also shows the scarier side of being in a new town by yourself. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's another part of, of the yeah. experience, I think, especially when you're by yourself, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. and it's nighttime and you're kind of just walking around, you know, and I think he, he conveys that feeling really well in the scene. Um, and so Louisa, you know, to get away from these men, she decides to stay with, uh, well, she walks into the lobby of the same motel that we've been seeing. And she decides to stay with a woman she's just met uh, who's trying to get a room there as well uh, in order to feel safer. And this woman's name is Dee Dee. And she's very talkative. <laughs> yeah. She talks a lot. And Louisa kind of just nods and listens. And uh, she talks about her ex-boyfriend, which kind of comes up uh, in the next segment. And uh, from there, Blue Moon plays again on the radio. And uh, we not only have the same Elvis portrait, but uh, the ghost of Elvis appears in the scene mm-hmm. and, and speaks to Louisa. And uh, well, how do you interpret that scene, Jeremy? I'm curious to get your your reaction to that. I don't know. I mean, I guess it could be the actual ghost of Elvis. I, I'm not ruling <laughs> that out. Um, it yeah. could just be that she's in that kind of half sleep, half awake state. Yeah. And is kind yeah. of seeing things what i do think is interesting. it could be the 
the story, you know, maybe the story is invading her dreams or yeah. something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, she's kind of. But but what I do think is interesting, uh, because the whole the whole time watching that segment, I kind of was thinking like, why did her husband have to die for this? Like, what in the story is going to come back to this idea yeah. of? And and so I mm-hmm. think the idea of being visited by a ghost, mm-hmm. um, is kind of is kind of a, a nice little tie into that. Um, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, it's it, it's just kind of a cool little thing. I'm not sure exactly what it means um to her yeah. and what what how it's changed her experience and her life moving forward um but once yeah. again i think one of the things in this movie that's exciting is that the banal is just as important as the sensational mm-hmm. and that's maybe it's just a banal thing and maybe this moment and this night really changes her life very little um but i do think right. it's interesting that that someone who's just lost her husband is being visited by the ghost of a man mm-hmm. um i don't know maybe maybe it's there's some comfort there for her mm-hmm. you know maybe it's just uh her trying to cope and processing it yeah. like it's like almost like a traumatic dream or something like <laughs> well, that it's funny because it's almost like an ebenezer scrooge kind of thing but he like his ghost doesn't really say anything that no important important or interesting what does he actually talk about i can't even remember yeah I, I, it, was, it was very quick <laughs> i could like, try to like pull it's it something, up it's something sort of banal i believe but um, yeah I, I think he said I, if i recall i think he, he might have even said he was like in the wrong place yeah i think he does say yeah i usually yeah. make notes but i that like i said i was a little more freewheeling with this one so i didn't really make yeah, a note it, about it, that but, it was a pretty quick um, little like yeah it, yeah, it's, yeah it's almost like a blink and you miss it kind of scene too which is yeah she's it, like it what are you feels like a what dream, are you doing here of. yeah he's like what are you doing here he's like i don't really know <laughs> <laughs> he's like i'm not supposed to be here yeah yeah so, he's like yeah it just, um, kinda, he just kind of ended up there and <laughs> So it also could just be seen as like a comedy scene, I guess, or just sort of like a non sequitur, or it's almost like maybe he felt like he had to put that in there just because I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, there could yeah. be a lot of reasons for that. Um, well, yeah, it, it's also a thing where, and, and I think this is one of the things that I interests me most about this particular era of Jim Jarmusch. He has another film called Night on Earth that came out a couple years yeah, later, which is um, so that similar I, I really, to this. Yeah, I really love as well. But I think he's interested, kind of like the the painter Edward Hopper. Um, he's or the, the photographer Gregory Crudson. He's kind of interested in these moments where they're just these quiet human moments happening all over the world that are maybe yeah. inconsequential. Um, like, mm. like like it's this kind of like lonely moment where someone is experiencing something in their life that mm-hmm. nobody else will ever get to see. And, and <laughs> yeah. I think I think in, when you said Mark, like he almost it almost is voyeuristic. I, I think it's not like it's not like voyeuristic in the way like david lynch's where you feel like you're seeing something like disturbing or strange you shouldn't be seeing i feel like mm-hmm. it's almost like you're seeing something that most of the time isn't even worth seeing like it's the kind of thing that we so, normally wouldn't bother looking at yeah but something for Jim Jarmusch, normally yeah something yeah so it's just, it's just like oh this is just this person sitting in bed at night maybe having a little bit of a dream but it's never it's not the it's not a horror movie dream where they wake up with a jolt it's not you know the yeah. dream where well, the, they're visited by the dead husband. It's just a dream where she pictures Elvis and she wakes up to yeah. the person sleeping next to her, but maybe he's not really there and mm. they go back to sleep. And, and, and well, it's those the little couple, moments. Yeah, I mean, the couple from the beginning, they literally pass by a character from a, from one of the other segments, yeah. um, mm-hmm. uh, played by uh, C. Buscemi. C. Buscemi, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so that's funny that you say that, that he, he kind of as a filmmaker, he kind of uh, focuses on these little moments or, or moments that you wouldn't normally think have any resonance, but they really do. Or, 
you know, things like that. It's, it's interesting. They kind of just walk by one of the characters that we see later. And yeah, it, it I, is, I can definitely it is interesting. That. It is interesting that you bring up that moment where they just pass the other character um, who they don't even see till, till we don't really get to know until later on. Um, as I watched yeah. this movie, um, and the time period is right. I kept actually thinking of early Tarantino movies, um, namely uh, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Obviously, he has a much more sensational kind of explosive filmmaking style yeah. where you you do get... There, there is, like, the big payoff at some point with his movies. Um, but, mm. but even, like, form-wise, the idea that this is three stories kind of coming together has some clear similarities to Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Um, yeah. But more, more just kind of tonally, this idea that there are moments that are kind of inconsequential where characters are just talking and kind of yeah. goofing off and you get a little window into those worlds, into that world that it's out of sequence, um, mm-hmm. that things are repeated. Um, I don't yeah. know. I, I guess I never kind of realized it. It's kind of like four rooms too, which uh, Tarantino yeah. was involved with. Yeah. Very, very like four, which is just interesting because, you know, you think about it and as we're ending this eighties indie series, um, you know, as we go into the nineties, that's when, because, because the eighties mm-hmm. indies, I think kind of had a much more, um, a much more like art film, clo- smaller focus. It wasn't the kind of thing that you would necessarily, your average film viewer would know about. It's probably people in New York and LA and, you know, like, mm-hmm. like cities would more know about it. Um, but then you go to the 90s and you have this explosion of indie movies where, you know, Pulp Fiction made $200 million and yeah. Robert Rodriguez mm-hmm. was making... Oh, that's when, yeah, that's definitely so, when so, but, but it is interesting because you, you look at a movie yeah. like this where it looks like, at least in my opinion, um, obviously probably the only person who really knows is Quentin Tarantino and his collaborators, <laughs> but like it looks like to me, I would guess that this movie was an influence, um, which is kind of cool seeing how 80s indies rolled mm-hmm. over into what ended up being the most influential, consequential 90s indies. Um, yeah, it's, definitely. It's kind of fun. It's kind of fun seeing that connection. It is, yeah. I mean, that's another reason I think this is a good one to kind of bridge the two decades as well um and uh yeah i agree i think the 80s is more about like a sort of very independent very cinema cinema verite like art artsy feel um Mm -hmm. that was still present i think in the 90s indies but definitely um Mm -hmm. they became a whole different animal um so it's interesting to think about and we'll we'll touch back on that in our you know our summary or conclusion at the end but um just to keep going with the film um, and to lead us into our third segment um, in the morning, Louisa wakes, and again, we hear that gunshot, uh, and we go to, um, and that, that ends that segment as well, and we go to our last segment, which is Lost in Space, and that is the one with uh, Joe Strummer playing Johnny, who people call Elvis, and uh, he's from England, and we first meet him in the, a Memphis bar, and um, so he's nicknamed Elvis, which he hates. He's like, it's, just so it's, funny. So this is like a, a common thing that we're seeing in the movies, you know, people bringing up Elvis and other people kind of like rolling their eyes and which makes sense if you, especially if you live in Memphis, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so he's lost Johnny from England. He's, he's lost his job and his woman. And who we realize is the talkative woman, Dee Dee from the second segment who stayed with Louisa in the, in the room. And, um, so this, yeah, Johnny's played by Joe Strummer uh, from The Clash, so a uh, big musician, and um, apparently the role was written uh, specifically for him, much like Screaming Jay Hawkins, and uh, apparently it was uh, The Clash is uh, Jim Dormush's favorite 1980s rock band, which makes sense, uh, and so he, because uh, th- we're going to talk about it in a bit, but um, he had conceived this film uh, a few years 
previously. Um, and actually him and uh, him and Joe Strummer were actually together in Spain at the time when he came up with the idea. So uh, even though he wasn't really an actor, he, you know, he wanted him to be in this and he decided to do it because mostly because of Memphis, actually. Um, yeah. He really liked the idea of, of going to Memphis and, and Memphis being the setting of the film. So, um, so anyway, back to the film itself. So we see Johnny in this bar talking to someone and he starts to show off his loaded gun. And ah, we start to put two and two together. And, mm-hmm. and then we see Steve Buscemi, who had also shown up very briefly in the first segment um, as they walk by him. And he is Johnny's ex-girlfriend's brother. His name's Charlie, and uh, he's a barber. He owns a shop, and that's that's how we saw him in the one scene when he's outside the shop there. Um, and their friend Will um, goes with Charlie to pick Johnny up from the bar, and they go to the liquor store. And this is where the gunshot comes in, um, which actually took me uh, back a little bit because I, I hadn't remembered where... I knew there was a gun and I knew there was a gunshot, but I didn't remember when it actually happened. But this mm-hmm. is the scene where it happens. And it's and like most Jim Jarmusch films, um, like you said, Jeremy, like the big things that happen are almost the same as the small things. They all have the same significance in a way. So this it, it makes sense that it would just that the gunshot would happen almost casually. Yeah. Uh, while while they're just in this liquor store. Um, it's almost like any other scene in the movie, but uh, the clerk makes a racist remark about Johnny's friend Will. Will Robinson, who he's with, and uh, he, Johnny shoots the clerk, and yeah, it, it all happens sort of suddenly. But I mean, that's how in real life I feel like something yeah. like this would happen. You know, yeah. it just would would happen all of a sudden, and and you almost wouldn't even know what just happened. So yeah, um, that ha- you know, so he shoots him, and they drive away, um, drinking the the bottles that they stole because they they grabbed a couple <laughs> bottles for the road, I guess, um, and they show up at the motel and they ask for a room, and. So they're all kind of staying in this room, hanging out, and they're all obviously. Well, I think Charlie more than anyone else is is pretty freaked out. Yeah. Uh, about what's going to happen to them, but they all just start getting drunk and and talking. And uh, Johnny laments why Elvis, uh, a white man, is everywhere, <laughs> everywhere they look. Uh, and uh, Will makes a joke like, "Next time we're going to ask for the Malcolm X suite," <laughs> which I thought was funny. Um, so yeah, this is sort of back and forth dialogue, which I found interesting. Um, they talk about the show Lost in Space, uh, because his name, the one guy's name is Will Robinson. It's like in the show. Um, actually, I wanted to ask you, uh, do you think there was any significance to that? I mean, not only did they name the segment Lost in Space, but they also referenced the TV show. I don't know if you have much knowledge of the TV show. I, 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 don't I know really, but, next to yeah. nothing about that TV show. I mean, just, just I in know, terms of I know the Danger name. Will Robinson. That's about it. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, just in terms of, I, I think you, this this entire film easily, just as easily, could have been called Lost in Space, um, mm-hmm. because it does seem like all, pretty much all the characters. I mean, you you have all these characters kind of like, staying and temporary it's kind of like light on Earth, like it has the same yeah, Lost in Space. Yeah, well, you you have these characters. Every single character in this movie is not home. You know what I mean? They're they're mm-hmm. all they're all being temporarily lodged in this place. That it does kind of feel this like place, a, a, yeah. a nowhere place. You know what I mean? Like. Like this, this motel doesn't really feel like it, it is somewhere that like exists in a hard, clear sense. I don't know if that if mm. that makes sense. It kind of feels like it is this kind of transitory. Um, it could be anywhere. Like it happens to be in Memphis because of all the Elvis memorabilia, but it's kind of almost just a place where people go when they're a little lost and just need a rest, and then they yeah. move on. Um, so I don't know. I, I think that that idea of lost in space is kind of a bigger idea um, that's pretty prevalent throughout the whole film. 
So the next morning, uh, Johnny tells Charlie um, that he was never actually married to Dee Dee <laughs> and that Charlie isn't really his brother-in-law. So this comes as a shock to Charlie and gets him even more upset than he was before. And uh, Johnny ends up putting the gun against his head and, you know, because we assume to kill himself. And when Charlie sees this, he wrestles with him for it. And we cut to the downstairs lobby where we see the night clerk and the bellboy and we hear a gunshot. So this is a different gunshot now. And uh, it goes to the room because we don't know exactly what happened. And the bellboy goes to the room to check it out. And we see that Charlie was shot in the leg. And we just he just says, uh, excuse me. And he runs away down the hall. And um, so the, from there, that's pretty much the ending of the film. They um, We kind of cut, go back to these other stories for very briefly. Uh, we go back to the train station that we saw in the beginning. Uh, we see the young couple from the first segment leaving, getting on the train, continuing their trek with, I guess, Fats Domino in, in New Orleans. I guess that's where their next stop is. Yeah. And uh, that, I actually went to New Orleans on my trip as well, that's my southern trip. So, yeah. Um, and they run into Dee Dee, who we see really quickly there. And she's just, I guess she's leaving as well because she had talked about that in her scene. And uh, they put on headphones. We hear music come in and the soundtrack and... Uh, then we see Luisa leaving for Rome on an airplane. And then we see the three men from the, from the last segment getting on a truck or getting into a truck. And, and <laughs> Charlie's being lifted, actually, onto the truck because of his yeah. leg, obviously. Mm -hmm. And they're taking him to a doctor in Arkansas, I believe. And uh, then they hear something and they don't know if it's a train or, or sirens. And they throw Charlie into the back of the truck and they start it up and... Apparently, it was both the train and the sirens because as they pull off, uh, they pull off alongside the train, which is alongside them. And we hear the plane from above at the same time as, as they're all leaving, which is really like a kind of like a cool idea that they're all. So it's the train, the truck and the plane all in the same shot, essentially leaving. I believe you just hear the plane, though. I don't think mm -hmm. it was inserted or anything like that digitally or anything. like no, that. No, I don't believe that. Um, Maybe if it was made now, it would be, but yeah. um, I still thought it was, it was actually like cooler that way because it was sort of like a even more subtle way to combine the three stories yeah. um, of everyone leaving. And again, the song Mystery Train by Elvis uh, during the credits. And again, we see the characters on the train leaving. So that is it. That's Mystery Train. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it's, it's really all about the atmosphere, the characters, the places that we see. Um, and he, he really does create a certain kind of vibe with this film. And I, I feel like, like I said, having been to Memphis, I just feel like he, he nailed it with, with that. I don't know how he did that really, but you know, it's, so it's really interesting. Um, and I was going to ask you your favorite segment, but I won't ask that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we both have the same, the, mm -hmm. the, the one that resonates maybe the most. Yeah. I'll um, say the, the yeah. one, the one I'm drawn to the most, but I'm not going to yeah. say it's my favorite because I think they're yeah. all I mean, part yeah, of the whole. I agree. So. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think they're all they're all relevant. They're all necessary. They're all part of the film and they all do kind of connect as well. So, um, not only thematically, but in, in other ways as well. So it's really, really a cool movie and, um, an anthology film, but also just a really good, you know, low budget indie to end on. Mm -hmm. And after the diverse array of films that we've talked about for the series, um, I especially feel that this was a good one to end on because, you know, this one's, like I said, more, I would say, lighter in tone, a little more laid back. Um, and as I said, voyeuristic, as many Jarmusch films are. And um, 
you know, and I think like I, even though we debated starting with his first film, uh, Permanent Vacation, uh, to start the series out, I'm, I'm glad we ended with this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also we talked about you know regarding budget. Um, so I just want to make a note about that that the budget was 2.8 million, and it was also financed by Japanese conglomerate J- JVC, who you see their their title in the beginning of the film. Um, and this was definitely a very considerable budget for Jarmusch compared to yep. what he had worked with before. Um, so, and it did give him a freedom that he didn't have before. Um, but as you said, Jeremy, I think he doesn't, he doesn't take it too far. Like, I don't think he goes over the top with it. I think he made very good use of the, of the budget that he had. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was, there was nothing in the film that felt like it was there just to show off. It, it I mean, it's in like it was... it's in color, <laughs> yeah. which I guess yeah, which I guess for Jarmusch is, for a, is him, a bit of a yeah. show off, but I don't know, I don't, I don't really think. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I almost feel like he would have done that anyway, though. So yeah, um, he, he wanted to challenge himself with something new, and he was very strict about the use of color as well. I mean, he wasn't just willy nilly, yeah. you know. He he um, yeah, he he wanted to use the color to have it be controlled, essentially to sort of conform with. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the overall aesthetic of the film, like it's very, I would say it's still pretty muted. Um, and, it, you know, there's the splashes of red that we get throughout, which is sort of interesting and and maybe alludes to the flashiness of, of someone like Elvis Presley or Graceland, you know, the place, uh, the location Graceland or something like that. Um, so it's pretty interesting, um, his use of color in the film. And, uh, you know, even though for him, it was his highest budget production at the time, uh, still pretty relatively low budget, right? And and certainly independent. And um, yeah, I mean, to me, Jarmusch is one of those directors that really exemplifies the low budget indie film scene in yeah. the 80s and the 90s, particularly. So he's also a good bridge into the next decade of uh, the 90s indies, which we might discuss on an upcoming series. We haven't really yeah. figured out what our next one's going to be we we debated possibly going right into a 90s indies series but we'll i guess we'll see yeah. um but that would Time certainly be a good one yeah mm-hmm. i mean i would love to to do a series on that so i'm sure at some um, point we will dive at least into some 90s indies movies because yeah you can't really talk about cult the history of cult movies without at some point taking the plunge into those 90s filmmakers yeah there's so many good ones i mean and I'm sure we'll talk about a lot of them just, you know, from doing other series as well. But um... yeah, I mean, I think like like we we're kind of saying before, I think the 80s was kind of an interesting uh, transitory period for independent cinema in general. Um, you, you went from, you know, the 70s where a lot of the independent films were, I mean, you had, you had some people doing really exciting, um, like groundbreaking work, but you also had a lot of schlock coming out in the 70s a lot of exploitation, which is great. Like, go watch it for sure. Go watch as many, mm-hmm. you know, exploitation, horror, 70 films as you can. Um, but but I think that... <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah, but they're, they're more to enjoy because of the sheer strange audacity and craziness. Yeah. I think in the 80s, you kind of started seeing people saying, hey, you know, we can take some of those same principles and really go make some, like, mm-hmm. quality, thought-provoking, interesting movies. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's something that kind of was built in the 80s you know that it was it was kind of at least to my knowledge the first decade where you really had a little bit of a movement kind of come and then like we mentioned expanded in a huge way in the 90s and now you know especially with uh cell phones with how available technologies are with um you know uh, editing on computers um Mm. now and you know anyone can make independent cinema not necessarily in a way where it's uh 
production value wise that it would be showing in a movie theater. But you know, you look at YouTube, you look at uh, TikTok, and I, I mm. think in a weird way you can kind of draw a line between mm. like eighties independent cinema and where we are today because I think it's hard for people. I think it would have been hard for people to imagine taking on actually doing creative filmmaking rather than just home videos had it not been for pioneers like a Jim Jarmusch yeah. or a Spike Lee mm-hmm. um, doing this. You do this a lot with stuff. a little. Yeah, yeah, doing all this 30, 40, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, and and just taking what they had, you know, the small budgets that they had and, and going for it. I think there's something to be said for that, whether you're a filmmaker or what you know whatever you might be interested in. Um, it's just a, a, a good attitude to have a, a good sort of like a good message. I would say like, you know, you're looking at a lot of these films um, that we talked about. A lot of them are first films from mm-hmm. from filmmakers that would go on to make, you know, other other great films. And, you know, maybe some that didn't really go on to do much else. But um, a lot of them were first films. And, and um, to the fact that we're talking about them now on this, you know, not that we're, we're the epitome of podcasts or anything like that, but mm-hmm. just the fact that people are talking about these movies, you know, in general, um, still, you know, and, and that they have this resonance and these this cult status sort of um, is really, I mean, that's that's something, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's a testament to them and and to all the, the people, the small crews they had that, that worked on these films. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, some had bigger crews than others, but ultimately they all were after the same thing, I think. And, um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think there was a, a very diverse array of films that we talked about. I'm glad we touched on all the ones that we that we did. Of course, there's many more that we would have liked to have included, but for the sake of ending the series sometime soon, <laughs> we're going to yeah. just call it a day. We kind of skipped, you know, we went from like 86, I think, to 89. But um, I think ending with Mystery Chain, it, was, it just made a lot of sense. And uh, it was certainly a huge... Uh, independent film uh low budget independent independent film when it came out so mm-hmm. um it makes sense and uh that yeah it was great rewatching it also i really just mm-hmm. enjoyed yeah and jim jarmusch uh, in general to go check out his other movies if you're interested Absolutely. um yeah and of course i must thank our two very special guests we had to help us out during this series the first one would be jill bell who discussed one of her favorite films valley girl and we had a great and fun conversation with her. And we also had Katia Blagrove, who helped us discuss She's Gotta Have It. Both really great episodes, great talks, and hopefully we have them on again soon. That's going to do it for us and for this series, 80s Indies. Thank you very much for listening to Cult Movie Cult. We really appreciate it. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any cult films you'd like to hear us discuss on the show, or if you'd like to officially join the cult and be a guest on the show, just like Jill and Katia did, please feel free to reach out to us at cultmoviecult at gmail.com. This has been Cult Movie Cult, and until next time, so long from the other side.